This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Amazon is the largest rainforest on the planet, covering over 2,700,000 square miles of South America. It's also one of the last remaining frontiers, with only 95% of the Amazon believed to have been explored. For many years, it had been assumed that the inhospitable conditions of the Amazon also hindered the development of technologically advanced human societies. While primitive tribes have demonstrated their abilities to create a place for themselves in the Amazon's unforgiving undergrowth, how could anyone create a permanent, thriving civilization while facing the Amazon's heavy rains, impenetrable jungle, and deadly creatures? Stories of vast cities in the Amazon seem to be the stuff of legend. For years, people searched the Amazon rainforest for hints of lost civilizations, but were unable to produce any evidence that they ever existed. But maybe that's because nobody knew how to look. Covered by dense forest, remnants of massive earthworks hint at something people have long thought was impossible, that a sprawling civilization didn't just exist in the Amazon. It shaped the Amazon into the massive rainforest that exists today. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. This is our first episode on Amazon Rings, a mysterious series of ring-shaped trenches found in parts of the Amazon rainforest. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And while you're there, we greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Deep in the jungles of Bolivia and Brazil, 
lie huge circular trenches known as the Amazon Rings. Although their purpose has mystified researchers, their presence points to a sophisticated and unique civilization that nobody had thought was possible in such a difficult environment. This week, we'll attempt to uncover who built these massive earthworks and why. Were they for defense? Religious rituals? Farming techniques? Perhaps something else entirely? Next week, we'll delve deeper into the civilizations that could have built the rings and the other mysteries that are hidden deep within the Amazon rainforest. Humans are thought to have first settled in the Amazon region sometime around 11,200 years ago. Very little is known about these early societies as they weren't documented until Francisco de Oriana traveled the length of the Amazon River in 1542 in search of the mythical city of El Dorado. The region was named the Amazon during this expedition when Oriana battled the Tapuya tribe on June 24, 1542. During the skirmish, the Tapuya women fought alongside the men, reminding Oriana of the mythical Amazon warrior women of Asia described by the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. During the journey, Oriana's chaplain, Gaspar de Carvajal, recorded Oriana's observations about the Amazon. As they traveled along the river, Oriana was in awe of what he saw. Quote, the further we went, the more thickly populated and better did we find the land. There were many roads here that entered into the interior of the land and very fine highways. Inland from the river, to distances of six miles more or less, there could be seen some very large cities that glistened in white. And besides this, the land is as fertile and normal in appearance as ours in Spain. Oriana described one village after another in a virtually unbroken chain along the river and its environs. He was impressed by the people's intricate clothing and painted robes, and their beautiful pottery that he said rivaled that of the finest craftsmen in Spain. In the end, Oriana was unsuccessful in his attempt to find El Dorado, and despite the amazing discoveries he made along the Amazon, he returned to the Spanish court in disgrace. The incredible account of his journey along the Amazon was seen as an exaggerated attempt to curry favor with the king in order to make up for his failure. Unfortunately, there are no other contemporary accounts of the Amazon at that time to corroborate what Oriana saw during his journey. By the time people began to seriously chronicle the Amazon in the next hundred years or so, there was no trace of the wonders Oriana described. During the 18th century, Writers described the Amazon as a pristine, virgin paradise, virtually untouched by man. There was no inkling that Oriana's account from the 1500s had any merit. The idyllic, Eden-esque vision of the Amazon was propagated by Prussian naturalist Alexander von Humboldt. In the first decade of the 19th century, von Humboldt extensively explored South America and the Amazon he encountered a land that appeared completely devoid of human impact. What people he did encounter were nomadic tribes who he regarded as simple and primitive. In his mind, they were essentially a part of the jungle. Upon von Humboldt's return to Europe, he encouraged artists to visualize his idyllic conception of the Amazon and its people, and this imagery became ingrained in the Western conception of the Amazon. 
In the early 1900s, the Amazon attracted the attention of an aspiring English explorer by the name of Percy Harrison Fawcett. The son of a disgraced aristocrat who had twice squandered a family fortune, Fawcett always had a fascination with wealth and treasure. In 1886, at the age of 19, he received a commission from the Royal Artillery and was stationed in Ceylon, now known as Sri Lanka. With little military action required, Fawcett took frequent walks through the island's vast forests and took great interest in the indigenous people's customs and traditions. He explored the island, searching archaeological ruins in the hope of discovering artifacts or buried treasure. Upon returning to England in 1901, Fawcett enrolled at the Royal Geographical Society at the age of 32 in the hopes of becoming a famous explorer in the tradition of David Livingstone and Richard Francis Burton, who had been instrumental in creating maps of Africa. At the time, the British government often employed mapmakers as spies, which was an ideal cover story. The same year he enrolled in the Geographical Society, Fawcett was quickly dispatched to Morocco, where he worked as a secret agent while surveying the land. Fawcett quickly proved to be a skilled mapmaker and rugged explorer, and in 1906, the president of the Royal Geographical Society approached him for a mission in South America. The boundaries between Peru, Bolivia, and Brazil were in dispute, and the country's governments wanted a neutral party to survey the area and create a uniform map. This was the opportunity the 39-year-old Fawcett had been waiting for. He accepted without hesitation, despite the dangers the expedition posed. Exploring the Amazon was not for the faint of heart. The claustrophobic jungle was exceedingly difficult to navigate. There was no stopping the incessant bites and stings of insects who could also transmit deadly diseases. Although the Amazon is full of life, it doesn't provide easy nourishment. Animals are hard to catch, and there aren't many easily harvestable plants. With only a 60-pound pack and a few companions, Fawcett trekked for hundreds of miles through the Amazon rainforest. During his journey, he quickly realized that he was being tracked by the area's indigenous people. Having been enslaved and killed by European rubber farmers, they were understandably wary of strangers and were known to kill anyone they deemed a threat. Rather than confront them with violence, Fawcett was determined to establish peaceful contact. When they were ambushed, he reportedly had his men stay where they were and sing songs like Soldiers of the Queen and Swanee River to show their peaceful intentions. The gesture worked, and Fawcett and his men were allowed to proceed unharmed. He returned to England in triumph, completed maps in hand. The Amazon had cast a spell on Fawcett. He couldn't wait to go back. Despite the deadly conditions, Fawcett couldn't resist the jungle's call. He returned two years later in 1908 on an even more perilous mission to trace the source of Brazil's Rio Verde. This trip turned out to be even more taxing than the last. His team ran out of food, and although they all made it out alive, a few members of Fawcett's team came dangerously close to dying. Even though it had almost killed him, Fawcett found that he suited the Amazon and the Amazon suited him. He made seven expeditions between 1906 and 1924, 
never returning to England for more time than necessary. The Royal Geographical Society praised him in its journal, noting that Fawcett was able to, quote, fare harder than most people would consider either possible or proper, end quote. The more time Fawcett spent in the Amazon, the more he became fascinated with its indigenous populations. Over time, Fawcett became convinced that the Amazon was once home to a powerful, complex civilization. He'd found shards of beautiful pottery along the Amazon River and had seen mound-like earthworks spread throughout the forest. He had read Francisco de Oriana's account and was convinced Oriana's claims of encountering vast cities and settlements had merit. Fawcett's opinions on the Amazon's people were a curious mix of Victorian-era racism and more progressive views. On one hand, he saw them as little more than dim-witted savages, and if there had ever been any advanced civilization in the region, he believed it would have been European in origin. He even believed an advanced society in the Amazon could have come from the people of Atlantis, but somehow couldn't imagine the possibility of it originating from the Amazon's indigenous people. And yet, he was an outspoken defender of indigenous culture and was staunchly against European colonization. Fawcett felt that his theory was confirmed after he came across an old worm-eaten document from 1753 in the Rio de Janeiro colonial archive, which collected old documents relating to the European colonization of the Amazon. Written by a Portuguese soldier of fortune, the document described the discovery of an ancient abandoned city with massive stone arches, a statue, wide roads, and hieroglyph-filled temples. The soldier was amazed. Quote, the ruins well showed the size and grandeur which must have been there, and how populous and opulent it had been in the age when it flourished. End quote. Fawcett was determined to find this city, which he called the City of Z although Fawcett would have pronounced it the city of Zed. He spent the next few years exploring the Amazon and determining the general area where he felt Z had been. But before he could plan an expedition, World War I broke out. Ever the patriot, Fawcett volunteered to fight on the front line in Belgium. Despite being nearly 50 years old, he was put in command of his own artillery brigade. After serving with distinction from 1914 to 1918, Fawcett tried to raise the funds for an expedition to search for Z, but was met with resistance. His swashbuckling, reckless approach to exploration was becoming replaced by the more meticulous approach of professional archaeologists. Making matters more difficult was the academic opinion that there was no way the Amazon was capable of supporting farming, which would have made it difficult for people to establish settled populations. Fawcett decided to take matters into his own hands, embarking by himself in 1920 at the age of 53 to search for the lost city of Z. He made it deep into the Brazilian rainforest, but was unable to continue after becoming delirious with fever. He named his endpoint Dead Horse Camp, as he had to shoot his weakened pack animal before turning back. Upon his return to England, Fawcett was unable to generate any support for a new expedition. After four years of unsuccessful lobbying in Britain, he turned his attention to the United States, 
where Fawcett found more appreciation for his adventurous spirit. He received funding from scientific institutions such as the American Geographical Society and the Museum of the American Indian, and came to agreements with news outlets in India, South Africa, Australia, Britain, and the United States. In exchange for funding, Fawcett agreed to file press dispatches throughout his journey. For this expedition, Fawcett would be joined by his 22-year-old son, Jack, and Jack's best friend, Raleigh Rimmel. Both young men were inexperienced, but Fawcett was convinced his extensive experience in the Amazon would be enough to keep them safe. They departed from the Brazilian city of Cuiabá on April 20, 1925. By this point, Fawcett was 57 years old, but he claimed he had never felt stronger. After an easy few days, the going started getting rough. Jack and Raleigh struggled with the harsh conditions, and the three men had to spend a few days recuperating at a ranch deep in the wilderness owned by a farmer named Hermenegildo Galvo. Galvo later told a reporter that during Fawcett's stay, the adventurer showed him a 10-inch idol he had obtained that he believed was a relic from the city of Z. A month after their departure from Cuiabá, the three men arrived at Bacairi Post, a small settlement of about 20 huts whose residents referred to it as the last point of civilization. After a brief respite, they headed into what was now terra incognita. There were no longer any paths to follow, only the coordinates where Fawcett was convinced they'd find Z deep in the Shingu Basin. After nine days of hacking a crude trail through the thick jungle, Fawcett, Jack, and Raleigh arrived at Dead Horse Camp, which was marked by the bleached bones of the horse Fawcett had been forced to put down during his previous expedition. At this point, Fawcett sent his Brazilian trail hands back to Cuiabá with most of their pack animals, who would no longer be of any use in the oppressively thick undergrowth. Fawcett wanted Raleigh to turn back as his foot was becoming dangerously infected by a tick bite, but Raleigh refused to leave his companions. Fawcett sent his trail hands back with several letters and a dispatch for the newspapers. In a letter to his wife, Fawcett wrote, quote, you need have no fear of any failure, end quote. But he was wrong. If Fawcett, Jack, and Raleigh ever did find the lost city of Z, nobody would ever know as the three men were never seen again. Several expeditions were mounted to try and find Fawcett, Jack, and Raleigh, but to no avail. In fact, it became so popular to search the jungle for Fawcett and his companions that the Brazilian government had to issue a decree in 1934 banning search parties unless they had explicit permission. After the many attempts to figure out what happened to Fawcett and his companions, it was assumed that they had died in the jungle, along with their dream of finding the lost city of Z. However, 50 years after Fawcett's disappearance, that dream was revived. In 1977, Brazilian geographer Alceu Ranzi was on a flight to the Brazilian state of Acre in the southwest Amazon when he saw something unusual. As he gazed at the deforested landscape below, Ronzi noticed a giant, ring-shaped, man-made structure that could only be visible from above. Ronzi was shocked, 
and rented his own plane so he could find out if there were more structures like it. What he found would fundamentally change people's view about the Amazon and open their eyes to the great civilizations that shaped it. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And now, back to Unexplained Mysteries. Between Percy Fawcett's doomed expedition in 1925 and Alsei Ramsey's discovery of the mysterious ring structures in Acre in 1977, there was a fundamental shift in how people explored the Amazon and how they approached its history. In 1925, the same year Fawcett was lost in the jungle, American adventurer and geographer Alexander H. Rice, Jr introduced the use of modern technology in Amazonian exploration. He was one of the first people to utilize aerial photography and shortwave radio to create a map more accurate than could ever be created by on-foot surveyors such as Percy Fawcett. For Rice, the Amazon was an empty space to conquer. Although it had people, in his mind, it had no civilization. He viewed the indigenous tribes he encountered as almost like animals. They were too simple, too primitive to make any real impact on their environment. Alexander H. Rice's belief that the Amazon was a place that could be tamed with modern technology signaled a paradigm shift in the way people thought about the area. People stopped looking at the Amazon as a paradise and started seeing it as a potential cash cow. As the 20th century progressed, the Brazilian government began exploiting the Amazon for its rich resources. By the mid-20th century, ambitious road-building projects cut swaths through the rainforest. Farmers and cattle ranchers flattened the towering trees and turned them into vast pastures. But even though the Amazon appears to be a bountiful paradise where crops could grow and cattle ranches could prosper, the land proved to be unforgiving. Although it boasts an abundance of animal and plant life, the Amazon rainforest soil is not especially fertile. The region's heavy rains quickly wash out any nutrients in the soil that aren't immediately gobbled up by the nearly 390 billion individual trees that make up the Amazon rainforest. This deceptive appearance led American archaeologist Betty Meggers to label the Amazon as a counterfeit paradise in 1971. 
She believed that the only way the area could support agriculture was through the slash-and-burn style practiced by today's indigenous cultures. Slash-and-burn is a small-scale agricultural strategy in which a patch of land is cleared and crops are grown on it until the soil is exhausted. Once it's no longer fertile, the farmers will clear another patch of land. This land use style makes it hard to establish large populations or permanent settlements. For many years, scientists assumed that the Amazon's indigenous people have always engaged in the slash-and-burn practice. This belief is why archaeologists, such as Betty Meggers, never seriously considered the possibility that there could be large, culturally developed civilizations in the Amazon. Despite the difficulties of making efficient use of the land cleared in the Amazon, rampant deforestation continued throughout the 20th century. Ironically, this destruction of the landscape is how Ronzi was able to discover the mysterious ring-shaped earthworks in Acre. He called them geoglyphs, as they were all cut in geometric figures such as circles or rectangles. They are also called ring ditches since they are made of deep trenches rather than raised earth. Currently, most ring ditches are three to five feet deep, but excavations have revealed that they once went as deep as 10 to 15 feet and could be up to 30 feet wide. Ronzi's discovery of the geoglyphs turned the scientific community's conception of the Amazon upside down. To build such massive structures would require significant manpower. Denise Sean of Brazil's Federal University of Pará has estimated that it would take at least 300 people to build one when taking both physical and domestic labor into account. This estimation contradicts the assumption that people living in the Amazon would have been restricted to small, contained tribes only a sizable society could dedicate that much manpower to such a project. The geoglyph's size and scope baffled researchers. How could the Amazon's unforgiving nature support a community large enough to build such ambitious earthworks? Who were the people that built them? And for what purpose? After discovering his first geoglyph in 1977, Alseu Ronzi spent the next 11 years searching for more of them and gathering data. He finally published his findings in 1988, and the race was officially on to find out more about the mysterious geoglyphs. One of the most striking aspects of the geoglyphs was how frequently they appeared. They weren't occasional, sporadic monuments spread throughout the rainforest, they consistently appeared in much of the land that had been deforested. One of the regions containing geoglyphs was the upper Xingu Basin of northern Brazil, which is the region where Percy Fawcett and his companions disappeared. These sites located in the Xingu Indigenous Reserve were first studied by the University of Florida's Michael Heckenberger in the early 1990s. They demonstrate how complex and extensive this mysterious geoglyph culture was. The Shingu Reserve is home to the Kwikuru people. Heckenberger wanted to explore their deep history, which had previously only been preserved through oral traditions. He hoped to use an archaeological approach to learn more about their culture before European contact. Within a few weeks of Heckenberger's arrival, 
The Kwikuru's chief showed him an ancient site encircled by a ring ditch with a circumference that was over 10 times the size of Kwikuru's modern village. Over the course of two decades, Heckenberger was able to map dozens more sites in the area, many of them just as large or even larger than the site the chief had originally shown him. Heckenberger's excavations in partnership with the Kwikuru tribe have revealed a similar organization to what the Kwikurus still employ today. A ring of houses encircles a central plaza, which has a single, large building in the middle. The Kwikuru's modern village has a current population of about 330 people. Each of these ancient sites could have easily been home to several thousand people, a far cry from the conception of indigenous tribes as small, isolated groups. Heckenberger and his team also found the remains of ancient roads, but these weren't small footpaths cut through the forest. They were up to 165 feet wide, the size of a modern four-lane highway. These massive roads radiated from the ancient villages at specific angles to the north, south, east, and west, with settlements every two to three miles. The entire region was organized in a latticework of roads that almost resembled modern-day urban planning. It was comprised of highly planned communities, usually seeing one central site with four smaller satellite villages in each cardinal direction. Those five sites together formed an urban center. Although it seems many villages were centered around the geoglyph structures, researchers haven't been able to pinpoint one specific purpose for the various geoglyphs in the Amazon. They probably didn't serve one specific function, and most likely filled one of several roles depending on the region in which they were built. For instance, the geoglyphs of the southern Amazon are astounding for their variation in shape and size. No two look exactly alike, and they can be anywhere from a few dozen feet in diameter to the size of over two football fields put together. This variance in appearance poses a difficult challenge for the researchers who hope to determine the geoglyph's purpose, as the lack of consistency makes it difficult to formulate a singular hypothesis. One element that was consistent with the geoglyphs was the deep trenches that created their shapes. This feature led some researchers to believe that the ring ditches could have been used as defensive features for villages. There was already a historical basis for this theory, as Swedish explorer Erland Nurenhold had described settlements with defensive ring ditches during his travels in the Bolivian Amazon during the early 1900s. Archaeologists have yet to discover hard evidence of fortifications such as wood remains or post holes. But in the Llanos de Mojo sites in the Bolivian Amazon, it's believed that the roughly circular, elliptical, and D-shaped ring ditches are likely to correspond to the palisaded villages referenced in Norenhold's accounts. Archaeological studies at Llanos de Mojos have led researchers to believe that the ring ditches did enclose fortified settlements. Their location in elevated positions in the landscape overlooking rivers makes them ideal locations for settlement. Additionally, excavations in the area within the ring ditches revealed house floors, domestic debris, and urn burials that would seem to confirm this theory. But ring ditch sites weren't only used for habitation as there is evidence that they were also used as burial grounds 
and moat-like water management systems. In areas such as Llanos de Mojos, water management would have been of utmost importance. With regular wet and dry seasons, the ring ditch's deep trenches would be an ideal place for water runoff during heavy rains and could then serve as water storage once the dry season set in. Many of the ring ditches are connected by what seem to have been canals leading to streams and rivers. In addition to serving domestic functions such as habitation and farming, ring ditches also may have religious aspects as well, especially in the Ocri sites that Alseyu Ronzi initially uncovered in the 1970s. These geoglyphs are much more geometrically precise and tend to be exact circles or squares with hexagonal and octagonal enclosures within them. The materials excavated from these sites differed from those found in cruder geoglyphs, such as those at Llanos de Mojos. Archaeologists found fewer ceramics than at other sites, and the ones they did find seemed to be votive offerings found inside the ditches. These sites have been interpreted as public spaces for repeated gatherings, such as communal feasts or ceremonies. The geoglyphs studied by Michael Heckenberger and the Kwikuru tribe in the upper Shingu Basin seem to combine all these aspects and more. All evidence points to the society in this region being socially, politically, and economically advanced in ways people never thought possible. Heckenberger likes to think that Percy Fawcett walked through many of these ancient sites. His lost city of Z may have been right under his nose. Fawcett was under the impression that Z had been constructed with stone, but most of the settlements in the Shingu Basin were probably built with organic materials such as wood and palm that would have decomposed long before Fawcett explored the area in the early 1900s. While Heckenberger doesn't necessarily think that one of the geoglyph sites in the Shingu Basin is actually the city Fawcett dedicated his life to finding, he was correct in his belief that a great civilization did exist in the region. But there's still the question of how this civilization managed to thrive in the Amazon's inhospitable conditions. Such large populations wouldn't be able to survive off the region's natural resources, would they? Archaeologists such as Betty Meggers were correct in their theory that the brittle, nutrient-poor soil of the Amazon rainforest wouldn't be capable of supporting large-scale communities. There's just no way to harvest enough from the land to do it. But what Meggers and other scientists didn't know was that the people of the Amazon used their environment in a way that nobody thought was possible. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now let's continue our story. Archaeologists had found an avalanche of proof that complex civilizations once thrived in the Amazon rainforest, beginning over 2,000 years ago. But one question remained outstanding. 
How did these mysterious civilizations find enough food to survive? The answer proved to be far more revealing than anyone could have imagined. In the 1980s, archaeologists took note of a soil unique to the Amazon, terra preta, or black earth. Unlike the typical yellowish-orange, nutrient-poor soil found in the Amazon, terra preta is dark in color and extraordinarily fertile, and can usually be found near geoglyph sites. And wherever researchers found terra preta, they found evidence of a human civilization in the form of pot shards, the academic term for pottery fragments and other broken ceramics. Although archaeologists don't know exactly how terra preta is formed, they believe it's created by smoldering organic waste, such as animal bones, feces, and straw, which in turn become nutrient-rich charcoal that soaks into the soil. The presence of terra preta near many of the geoglyph sites meant that this mysterious civilization wasn't just living off the land, it was shaping it. The discovery of terra preta meant that this civilization was able to sustainably farm crops. But how could they clear enough land to do it? Burning that much forest would probably spiral out of control, and I can't imagine it'd be easy to chop down such massive trees with stone tools. That's because they didn't have to clear it. Microfossils taken from sediment cores of a lake near the Llanos de Mojos geoglyph site in Bolivia showed that the area was covered in savanna-like grasses from 6,000 to 2,500 years ago when people first settled in the area. They didn't have to cut down any trees because there weren't any there. This could explain how the terra preta was formed. Unlike the massive trees that populate the rainforest, it's easier to burn grasses more slowly, especially if they're wet from the rains that inundate the region. A slower burn would allow the valuable nutrients from the grasses to absorb into the ground and create fertile soil where they could grow their maize. This strategy isn't unique to only Llanos de Mojos, either. Other geoglyph sites around Bauris and Riberalta in Bolivia were first occupied 2,100 to 1,650 years ago, with the geoglyphs themselves aged anywhere from 2,000 to 750 years old. It seems like once these civilizations established themselves on the land and were able to set down roots, they were able to expand their culture that involved the geoglyphs. The human element required to create terra preta means that if researchers could locate instances where it occurred, there was a significant chance they would also find more geoglyphs. But they could only be seen if the land was deforested, as even sophisticated imaging technology had a hard time penetrating the thick canopy. Luckily, the composition of the forest is different in areas that contain terra preta. Contrary to what you might think, the trees that grow in this enriched soil actually tend to be shorter and are usually palm trees, which can provide nutrition for humans. Palms also attract animals that are easy to hunt, such as taper and peccaries, and can provide materials for building houses. Whether these trees are the descendants of palms planted by the geoglyph builders or were cultivated by more recent groups who took advantage of the fertile soil is unclear. Regardless, being able to locate terra preta sites is a useful tool for identifying the extent of human settlement in the Amazon. In addition to being found in Acre, where Alceo Ranzi had first found the geoglyphs, 
Terra Preta started popping up in areas all over the southern Amazon basin, such as the Llanos de Mojos in Bolivia and the Upper Xingu region in northern Brazil. These Terra Preta discoveries vindicated Francisco de Ariana's 1542 account of his journey through the Amazon, which had never been considered to be anything more than an exaggerated attempt to impress the Spanish king. But the discovery of Terra Preta along the route he described means there might be more than a kernel of truth in Oriana's account. Not only were there instances of Terra Preta in areas where Oriana said there were vast cities and large populations, but pottery remains discovered in the Terra Preta matched the description of the intricate and beautiful ceramics Oriana claimed to have seen. Rather than regarding his book as pure fantasy, Many academics now believe Oriana was largely telling the truth about what he saw during his travels in the Amazon. So if Oriana really did encounter developed civilizations during his travels, where did they go? It seems like by the time other European travelers arrived in the Amazon, they'd all disappeared. They were most likely wiped out by the deadly diseases Europeans carried with them across the Atlantic. It's believed that diseases such as smallpox and influenza killed between 95 and 99 percent of the Amazon's indigenous population. With so many of them wiped out, it's likely there just weren't enough people left to maintain the advanced civilizations Ariana had witnessed. Those who did survive probably retreated deeper into the jungle where they could escape these diseases' deadly reach. Data collected at geoglyph sites all but confirm this theory. Sediment samples taken from a lake near the geoglyph site at Llanos de Mojos contain traces of pollen from maize, otherwise known as corn. As a farm crop, these high levels of maize means the land was occupied for almost 2,500 years until about 500 years ago, which coincides with the arrival of Europeans in the Americas. It's tragic to think that in a matter of a few years, what seems to have been a thriving culture was completely eradicated. They had managed to create a prosperous civilization in the unforgiving ecology of the Amazon, just to see thousands of years of culture swallowed by the jungle. But even though the vast majority of this civilization disappeared, its traditions didn't all fade away. The Kwikuru are certain that they are the descendants of whoever survived European contact, and their traditions confirm that belief. In addition to organizing their villages in the same way as their ancestors, the Kwikuru have maintained the same pottery techniques as the ancient civilization that lived in the Shingu Basin. Their painted red clay ceramics are so similar that a local craftsman was convinced an artifact from nearby ruins was made recently when Heckenberger showed it to him. Their pots even showed the same grooves as the ancient ones. These grooves are formed from boiling the toxins out of the manioc, a tuber-like plant that serves as a common food source in tropical areas. This cultural continuity is not unique to the Kwikuru tribe. On Marajo Island, at the eastern mouth of the Amazon River, the modern occupants utilize the same survival techniques that were pioneered by their predecessors. Twice a year, Marajo Island endures a tidal event known as the Puraroka, a Tupi word meaning great roar. It's a tidal surge that comes in from the Atlantic Ocean and is so powerful that it can be heard over 30 minutes in advance of its arrival. 
The Pororoca can move up to 35 miles an hour and has traveled as far as 800 kilometers inland along the Amazon River. The Pororoca's arrival signals the beginning of the lengthy wet season, during which Marajo Island endures months of heavy rains. For almost half of each year, the island is almost completely submerged underwater. To survive these challenging conditions, the area's ancient people built giant earthen mounds that would stay above the water level. It's not clear exactly how they built the mounds, but it would have required a monumental effort. To build the mounds high enough above the water lines, the people of Marajo Island would have needed to remove, transport, and place the equivalent of 105,000 full truckloads of earth. But just surviving the flood wasn't enough. They still had to find a reliable food source. The answer can be found through today's residents of Marajo Island. After the rains stop, the water level recedes, creating small streams and lakes. Fish become trapped and are so easy to catch, they can simply be plucked out of the water. However, these fish traps are not a natural result of the landscape. They all occur next to the mounds built by the ancient residents of Marajo Island. By creating these fish ponds next to their mounds, they were able to secure a protein source that would last them through the year. Like with the geoglyph cultures, the people of Marajo were reshaping the land in ways nobody could have previously thought possible. But the key to survival on Marajo Island wasn't the only secret hidden in the earth mounds. In 1949, American archaeologist Betty Meggers, who would later label the Amazon as a counterfeit paradise, was leading an excavation of the mounds when she discovered a giant earthenware jar adorned with elaborate symbols and containing human bones. It was a funerary urn that was part of a burial ground containing six more urns just like it. This ornate pottery came as a surprise to Meggers, who was working under the assumption that it wasn't possible for people in the Amazon to develop a society complex enough to produce ceramics of this quality. After finding more artifacts buried within the mounds, it was clear that a sophisticated society with complex beliefs and a defined social hierarchy had lived on Marajo Island. Meggers wasn't convinced that this society had originated in the Amazon. The land was simply too unforgiving for a culture like this to flourish. She believed the people had come from elsewhere. But where did they come from? The clue was in the polychrome, or highly colored ceramics. Meggers and her colleagues found many similarities between the artifacts found on Marajo Island and pottery techniques that had originated with the indigenous people of Colombia. She believed they'd brought their culture with them to Marajo Island, where they struggled with the harsh conditions and couldn't sustain their cultural practices. But more recent studies led by Anna Curtenius Roosevelt that began in the 1980s have proven Meggers' theory incorrect. Carbon dating revealed that Marajo culture had been producing ceramics as far back as 3,000 years ago, and that their ceramic style was developed independently of other cultures. Their culture actually grew more complex over time, rather than declining as the years passed. The studies on Marajo Island, along with Alseyu Ronzi and Michael Heckenberger's studies of the geoglyph cultures, 
has led some researchers to even postulate that it was people from the Amazon who brought their cultures north, rather than vice versa. Through all the studies done in the Amazon, it's now thought that nearly 5 million people lived there before Europeans arrived and decimated the population in the 1500s. With so many people in the region, it's certainly not unthinkable that some of them could have migrated north. But Michael Heckenberger doesn't want people jumping to conclusions. In an interview for a 2005 New Yorker piece on the lost city of Z, Heckenberger commented on the history of scientists forming misconceptions about the Amazon. Quote, Anthropologists made the mistake of coming into the Amazon in the 20th century and seeing only small tribes and saying, well, that's all there is. The problem is that by then, many native populations had already been wiped out by what was essentially a holocaust from European contact. That's why the first Europeans in the Amazon described such massive settlements that later no one could ever find. Although caution is key in making assumptions about the civilizations that flourished in the Amazon, it's clear there's so much more to learn, and studies continue to bring new information and discoveries to light. It definitely makes you wonder how many legends and myths about the Amazon could actually be based in truth. If this civilization could build the lost city of Z, perhaps even El Dorado could lie in wait, swallowed by the jungle. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Alex Benedon and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.